Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Oh, ho, the Wells Fargo wagon is a coming down the street. Oh, please let it be for me. Oh, ho, the Wells Fargo wagon is a coming down the street. I wish, I wish I knew what it could be. I got a box of maple sugar on my birthday. In March, I got a great mad And once I got some grapefruit from Tampa. Montgomery Ward sent me a bathtub and a cross saw. Yes, that's the way things used to be. You waited and waited, and then maybe the Wells Fargo wagon showed up with something you'd ordered months ago. But that's not the way Americans live anymore. At least that's not the way they think they live. We've been living in kind of a dream world where you want something, you think about it, you know, and about two or three days later it shows up. Uh, except now, because of something called the supply chain. A supply chain, well, like any chain, it's only as strong as its weakest link. Although this may be a situation where a whole lot of links got all weak at the same time. But people who know better will tell you about this. Uh, a little bit later in this uh, segment, you will meet a, a truck driver and the owner and operator uh, of his own freight company. Uh, but before that, we're going to get things started with Terry Esper, who's going to be uh, our Virgil leading us through the underworld of the supply chain. He's an associate professor of logistics in the Department of Marketing and Logistics at the Fisher College of Business of Ohio State University. He's also on the board of the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals. Terry Esper, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. So good to be uh, with you today. So uh, let's just talk in broad terms about how we got here. I mean, is this a fair assessment or a, of the core problem, that Americans are currently buying a record amount of stuff uh, and that spending binge, binge is crashing the transport and warehousing network that ordinarily would move it all around? Is that sort of what's happening here? I would say sort of. I think, of course, as we recover from 2020 and the pandemic uh, or the onset of the pandemic, I'll say, I think there is some truth to that. Uh, unfortunately, I think there are so many additional moving pieces over and above the sheer demand factor that really made the supply chain crisis uh, a perfect storm, if you will. So not only was it the demand, but we also struggled in areas of capacity and supply. And I think that's where the, the, the real those are the real root causes, I think, that cause us to be here today. Right. So, I mean, uh, years ago, we did a show with Rose George, who wrote a book that's called something like 90% of everything. It's it's about the container ship industry. So an awful lot of things that come here uh, and that will eventually be consumable goods, they arrive at these big ports and container ships. Uh, and, and that seems to be where the bottleneck starts, right? I mean, it's going to play out in lots of other sectors. We'll be talking about the trucker shortage in just minutes. But it, but it seems to begin maybe at these major ports, Savannah, Long Beach, uh, Los Angeles, and then some of the, the not quite so giant ones? Absolutely. I think, of course, the port congestion was one of the real big bottlenecks. I'll actually even take you a step further back. I think it also has to do with this the sheer amount 
of product that was being purchased by companies, the amount of products that were being imported. And not so much of that was a representation of current demand. I think we saw companies really thinking a lot more uh, forward uh, forward buying uh, in their approaches to, to purchasing inventory as we saw the pandemic, you know, causing all the stoppages and, and really having to reconcile uh, a, a lot of interruption in, in the product flow of the supply chain. And so having to kind of catch up from the, the impediments that we uh, experienced early, and then you lay on top of that the holiday demand, and it just created uh, a, lo- a situation where there was a lot of inventory coming in, and then you layer that with the port congestion issue, and then all the other things you alluded to. And it was really one of those perfect storm scenarios. You know, and, and part of that, there's the pandemic um, has a lot of different effects here. So one of them might be, you correct me every time I say something wrong, which will probably be frequently, but even at the beginning when the, the demand for PPE was very, very high at a global level. So suddenly, I mean, you have a system that basically works with container arrives in place A, uh, eventually gets unloaded, then ultimately gets filled up with something else uh, before it it heads out on the uh, on the high seas to go someplace else. But sometimes you're you're now you're the PPEs have to go to maybe places in in East or West Africa where there isn't a natural flow of stuff that would go back into the container. So my understanding is in some cases containers wind up getting stranded in places because they're, they're they needed the PPEs or a little bit later on the vaccines right away, but there wasn't really a plan with what to fill them up with. Yeah, I I think there is a a lot of truth to that. So you're spot on. The reality is that there's only so many boats, so many planes, so many trains, so many trucks, and so many drivers, right, to keep later. But, and so as you suggested, we really saw our global supply chain infrastructure um, having to grapple with a, a pandemic and all of the requirements that came along with that, that were not things that we predicted, right? So we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty here, a lot of changes that had to be made on the fly. And so the result is the supply chain crisis that we find ourselves in. And I think that's a big part of what was really one of the more root root causes of this is we were operating on a supply chain that was very based on predictability and forecast and the ability to predict with some degree of precision what's needed where and when. The reality is that, you know, the pandemic really shook that up. And so we're dealing with the reverberations and and catching up as we can. The other thing that's happening, and then we're going to go to Keith, but um, another thing, that, another thing that's happening is then you have a supply and demand situation even with the containers, right? So you've got importers bidding up the cost of a container run. What used to be a $4,000 container run is suddenly a $15,000 container run. Companies are bidding against each other for that. They're bidding against each other for warehouse space, too. There's a, there's a warehouse space shortage. So, I mean, it's one reason I think we're seeing a, a price spiral here is just the cost of doing anything is getting very, very exaggerated almost artificially by these insane costs, uh, competitive cost of, of, say, moving a container from Asia to to the U.S. Yeah. And that that's the part that I think most companies, particularly retailers, are really grappling with how to uh, how to pad as much as possible that additional cost before having to elevate prices. But of, of course, as we see, there there are some inevitable price hikes that we've seen even in the consumer market. But you're right. I mean, with supply and demand, we, we have you know the price fluctuations and, and cost differentials. 
And it's been quite, quite significant. I'm, I'm glad to report that we're turning the page relative to those really you know, significant cost hikes. And so that's promising. But you're right. I think what we're seeing is a lot of companies trying to find ways to cut costs in some of those other aspects of getting product to the market. So the warehousing infrastructure, the, the cost of, of uh, operating and trying to be more efficient in the way that they're moving that product once it gets into uh, through the ports to try to balance some of those increases of getting product to the coast. Um, but yeah, it, we're watching it. And, and you're right. It has caused that trickling effect whereby we're seeing uh, price increases at retail. All right. So this is the perfect time to bring Keith Trossell in, as I say, a truck driver and owner-operator of Boba Freight. I love the name, by the way, uh, which is uh, based in Columbia, Connecticut. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, hi, Colin. Uh, longtime fan. Thanks for having me. So tell us what's going on here. We hear, for example, that there you know, has been for some time a shortage of truck drivers, uh, maybe a shortage of as many of, as 80,000 uh, truck drivers that might be kind of a, a desirable workforce. What's, what's your take on this? What's your read on it from, from where you sit? Oh, we might have lost Keith. Um, all right. So let's well, try. Oh, there he is. Um, two years I actually have been, I did a little bit of Pennsylvania. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're, you're sort of cutting in and out. I'm going to just back off for a second. We'll see if we can maybe reestablish with you a little bit. I'll, I'll cut back to Terry. We'll see if we can uh, zoom in on you. Um, you know, Terry Esper, I think another thing that you're sort of, you were sort of suggesting at the end there is that, you know, a lot of the sort of dramatic problems uh, were these bottlenecks at the ports and the insane cost uh, of shipping. In, in some cases, in my understanding, it was actually more profitable to send an empty container back to to China or, or to Vietnam to be filled up and then brought over again for a $15,000 run than it was to look around for something to put it put into it. That often involved inland travel to farm areas where maybe that container would be lo- loaded up with soybeans ordinarily and sent back to Asia. But that wasn't happening anymore. It, but it sounds like what you're saying now is that a lot of the drama has moved maybe away from the ports and more to that question of getting goods inland and then getting inland goods from the U- in the U.S. back out to the coast, to the ports, right? I, I think you're right. I mean, I, we, we still got some port issues, so I wouldn't downplay those. Um, we're still you know, figuring out how to effectively – you know, operate at, 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 at a port, at a, at a level that is commensurate with what we see in terms of outbound. So one, one of the issues that we have had for a very long time, this predates all of this. I mean, I, I think the, the point I really want to try to convey here is that a lot of these issues we were grappling with for years before it all came to a, uh, a head in 2021. We've been watching for some time and we knew that, you know, uh, container uh, productivity was sometimes double to triple uh, on the outbound in Asia than what it was on the inbound operations on the West Coast. So that's been a problem we've been dealing with for some time. I think the fact that we now see those ports on the West Coast, the, the major ports operating 24-7, finding ways to be more efficient, I think we're, we're, we're curtailing a lot of that issue. But it's been something we've been grappling with for a long time. And I, I think now we 
now that we're getting to some degree of, of normalcy with those operations, we're now starting to shift our focus to more of the inland operation to try to speed up product once it gets through the port operation. And we see a lot of the, especially the big major companies making some really significant changes in order to speed up that product to market process. All right. So I'm being told Keith was in a tunnel in Pennsylvania. Uh, so we'll give him another, another minute or two to get out into the daylight. We'll try him again. But I mean, uh, the other thing, of course, uh, another thing that we're hearing, I mean, from President Biden is talking about his infrastructure uh, legislation is part of the goal is to modernize the ports with a $17 billion uh, investment. Ultimately, uh, he says, reduce congestion, uh, address repair and maintenance backlogs, deploy state-of-the-art technologies, make our ports cleaner and more efficient, do the same with airports and, and freight rail. Um, is this realistic? Can we build our way out of this problem that, as you said, was was a problem waiting to to blow up into its current proportions even before the pandemic hit? Yeah, I, I think so. A, a few things relative to the port infrastructure. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've seen, and we saw this with the the big container ship that was uh, stuck in the in the canal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are significantly large vessels. Oftentimes, a lot of our U.S. ports can't receive those large vessels because the just the the, uh, the 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 waterways aren't deep enough at the coast, and so there's a lot of work to dig deeper to be able to receive those larger vessels. Another big part of this is you know you get those large vessels in, and the the big cranes that you see at ports, a lot of those cranes aren't wide enough to be able to reach all the way across those big vessels to offload that product. So while the shipping companies and the ocean container lines are, you know, creating those larger vessels and manufacturing those larger vessels in order to move more product at the same time, which allows us to be more efficient, the reality is that a lot of our ports uh, on the coast can't receive those large vessels. And so as a result, they're hard to process or it takes multiple steps to process. I do think that investment in those things from an infrastructure perspective will allow us to gain those efficiencies. Um, As an example, when you have a a, a crane that that can't reach across a vessel, you've got to go as far as you can and then take that vessel out in the water, turn it around and bring it back on the other side to then offload the rest of the containers on the other side of the vessel. When you've got larger cranes, you don't have to do that. And that kind of efficiency is, I think, what this infrastructure proposition is going to offer. Right. The more I read and the more I learned about this, the more I realized one of the problems is just like people having to wait for stuff. And that's another good segue back to Keith Trossel, who I believe is out of the tunnel in Pennsylvania uh, and can uh, we can hear him now. Hi, Keith. Are you there? I am here, Colin. Okay. Um, so yes, we are out of the tunnel. All right. So, so tell us about a little bit about the shortage. Why, as a trucker uh, and as a as a business owner, would you say there's a shortage right now? Um, well, two years ago, when um, we decided to do the business, um, we started school at a affordable CDL training school in uh, Colchester, and uh, I did a little research. And as of 2019, 2018, the average age of a trucker was 53. Mm-hmm. And w- with the pandemic and, you know, all the people we've lost, all the people that have retired, there's just not enough truckers to go around. And uh, as Terry was talking before with the uh, container bidding wars, the same thing is happening with, happening with uh, trucks and freight. So what we got paid, you know, $2 and 30 cents a mile for two years ago, we're getting paid $5 a mile for, and it keeps going up because there's just not enough truckers to do the job. 
Right. The good news is you get paid more by the mile. The bad news is you get paid by the mile and, and you're entering a world. I don't know about you specifically, but my understanding is truckers are entering a world where the delays are worse than they have ever been before. You can spend hours oh. and hours. You go ahead. Yeah, you, you, you tell the story. Um, that is true. Um, just with uh, the shortages at loading docks, the shortages um, of the shifters who work at facilities that move the trailers around so we can pick them up and take them. A, a couple of years ago, a normal turnaround time was two hours. And now, especially food products, we're seeing turnaround times of six, eight, ten hours where we're just sitting here, not moving, not making money. And basically watching TV in the truck. Are there places you just don't want to go? I mean, would you if say, no, I'm not going to the port of New Jersey because that's like six hours of just sitting there before anything happens. Are there places you're kind of reluctant to go into? Um, it's not really um, geographic places. Mm. It's uh, more companies and the companies that, you know, tend to pay their employees better tend to have more staff and the, you know, co companies that tend to skip tend to have less staff and longer turnaround times. So we'll go to the companies that pay their employees a better wage. Well, there's also the question, particularly during the height of the pandemic, which and obviously it's it's uh, an undulating wave uh, even now. But you had sort of situations where people's comfort levels with maybe you coming into a building uh, were not as high. I, I don't know this whether this happened to you, but I've read a lot about truckers saying, "Oh no, they don't want us anywhere near." They put a porta potty out in the parking lot, and it's 25 degrees out there, and they say, "That's it. Other than that, stay in your truck. We don't want you in here." So there's sort of a way that, in which the customers are not treating you as well as they used to. That is exactly true. And during the pandemic, they put out one porta potty for all the truckers coming in and out. And how clean is that? Yeah. And so, no, um, a lot of the people we know have been leery about um, going to places and the the service we've gotten has definitely gone down. And we've only been doing this two years. I can imagine the people that have been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. And so, you know, just to go back to what you said at the beginning, too. So you've got a workforce that's aging. Uh, you've got, uh, although I think there's some lobbying to change this, uh, you, you can't start until you're 21, at least with some of the big trucks. Right. And then you've got also a workforce that's 93 percent male, which means you can't really you're not effectively drawing on 50 percent of the available working population. So I, I don't know. On the other hand, we've talked to at least one school where they said, well, suddenly they're starting to get more applicants, too. Uh, I mean, how do you feel about the future? Is there a way in which with the higher fees and stuff like that, maybe you would do attract newer, younger truckers? Um, well, uh, a minor correction, yeah. um, as long as you're not leaving the state of Connecticut, you can truck starting at the age of 18. Okay, it's yeah. just across it's the federal yeah. state lines. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing more and more female truck drivers, um, people of different ethnicities. It's not the closed group that it used to be years past. It's not how you would stereotypically picture a trucker. So I think that diversity is building on its own and give it time and a few more graduates and this will no longer be a topic for discussion. So let me ask you one last question. What do you want people to, I mean, I feel like, you know, we're, we're living in a December 2021 where everybody's just sort of kind of 
globally pissed off about everything. And and one of the things that they're pissed off about is that they can't get the stuff that they want or they think their Christmas presents aren't coming on time or they went to CVS and the shelves were all bare or and they're frustrated and they're mad at everybody. I don't know. What would you want people to know about the trucker part of that equation? Um, the trucker part of that equation is um, we're we're working hard and we're doing the best I can. And, you know, the pandemic's been hard on us just as with everyone else. And, you know, this too shall pass. And we're, we're I'm out here delivering your Christmas presents right now. So they will <laughs> arrive on time. We're actually two hours early for this load. Oh, that's good to hear. Keith Drussell, you're a great guest. I'm now a fan of yours, too. Truck driver, owner of Boba Freight. What a great name for a company. Based in Columbia, Connecticut. Keith, may the force be with you. Uh, Thanks a lot, Colin. I appreciate you having me. All right. So back to you for a second, Terry, and then we're going to go to a break. So one of the other questions is, like, what six months from now, let's say it's May of 2022, are you and I still having basically this same conversation? I mean, this doesn't feel like the kind of bottleneck that clears up. Um, it's got so many different moving parts to it, and a lot of those moving parts aren't moving. So what kind of conversation are we having six months from now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Colin. It's interesting. You talk about, you know, what do you want people to know or to take away? I think, you know, one of the things that's been in, particularly interesting to me about this is as someone who's worked in supply chain and studied supply chains for 20, 25 years, um, you know, th- we thrive in supply chain on being invisible, right? The, the idea that the work that we do is work that if we do it well, no one will notice um, it, because everything runs without a hitch and everything is seamless. Uh, the fact that we're having all of these conversations really have brought to the forefront just how important supply yeah. chains are. And and I think that's the the key for me is you know, hopefully in May, we're still talking about the importance of supply chains. Hopefully this doesn't become uh, a topic just because it's the holiday season and everyone's buying gifts, but that we really are still talking about how vital and important this work is and just how significant the work of folks like Keith, how important that work is to our economy. So I'm, I'm hoping we're still talking about it. I don't think we'll be out of the clear. I don't think we'll be out of the water yet, of, you know, pun intended in terms of the, the crisis. But uh, hopefully we're still talking about it and we're still recognizing how vital this work is. All right. Let's grab a quick break here. We'll have more of Terry on the other side. We're also going to talk about kind of the the secondary or secondhand market. Uh, We're going to talk to the president and CEO of Goodwill, Western and Northern Connecticut. What if you can't get um, new stuff? We like to watch movies with pretty women. We like to eat pizza. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. 
you're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Now, my good man, some cheese, please. Yes, certainly, sir. What would you like? Well, uh, how about a little Red Lester? I'm afraid we're fresh out of Red Lester, sir. Never mind. How are you on uh, Tilsit? Never at the end of the week, sir. Always get it fresh first thing on Monday. Tish, tish. No matter. Um, well, four ounces of kefili, then, if you please, stout yeoman. Ah, well, it's been on order for two weeks, sir. I was expecting it this morning. Yes, it's not my day, is it? Ah, uh, Belpaise? Sorry. Red Windsor? Yeah, so we're all kind of living in the Monty Python cheese shop sketch these days. Uh, you can't always get what you want, no matter what the Rolling Stones tell you. So we're talking about the supply chain today. Terry Esper is an associate professor of logistics in the Department of Marketing and Logistics at the Fisher College of Business of the Ohio State of Ohio State University. He's also on the board of the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals. In just a moment, uh, we're, we're going to talk to Jeff Weiser, president and CEO of Goodwill of Western and Northern Connecticut. But before we do, Terry... First of all, you know, just to kind of follow up on what you were saying at the end uh, of uh, of the previous segment where you were sort of saying, well, maybe we'll all stay interested in this. Um, I would imagine your profile in the world has kind of changed. I mean, uh, you know, we don't really have big parties anymore, but I, I can imagine that maybe in 2018 somebody saying, see that guy over there? That's Terry Esper. He's an expert in the supply chain. And people might not necessarily have flocked around you. But I'm guessing these days people really want to talk to somebody who knows <laughs> what you know. Yes. Yes, it is. It's amazing. I mean, I can honestly tell you, again, I've been in this space for 25 years or so, and folks are finally like, you know, you've been telling me that what you do is pretty important, and I had no idea what it was. And now, you know, I get it. <laughs> so it has definitely been my time to shine. I've been milking it, too, to be honest <laughs> with you. It has been a good time. It has been a great time. No, yeah, why not? Um, so, I mean, what, just to go back to where we began, I mean, it, it, it is worth emphasizing, and I think I hope we've illustrated it at this point. Yeah, there are a lot of moving parts, and a lot of the moving, moving parts aren't moving the way they're supposed to move. But, you know, driving all this, I, I heard one estimate that we've had five years of online retail growth crammed into about a year and change, right? Yep. That we'll, yep. One of the problems here is that people want to get their stuff a different way. Uh, and, and it just, it, it was a tsunami, right? It wasn't a trickle. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That, that's been a big part of this, especially, especially, um, you know, so especially over and above just the sheer demand for product, I think it's important to call out to your point, we're shopping differently. And the reason, I mean, and this is the reason why the supply chain narrative is something that I think we're all aware of and cognizant of at this point. Because, you know, today supply chains go all the way to our front door. Supply chains used to stop at the back, the back door of a Walmart, if you will. And so it was invisible to most of us. But now that we're seeing product and supply chain flow go all the way to our doorstep, it has now become a consumer issue. And this is why we're talking about it, because we're shopping so differently and the numbers continue to rise as it relates to online shopping. And therefore, the supply chain topic is now starting to affect our daily lives and the way we live every day. So it's not just an invisible issue anymore. 
you know, and this is sort of a whole separate area. This isn't the, the, the delivery to consumer question here. But mm-hmm. I'm also wondering whether you anticipate a somewhat reformatting of, of some of the ways that people do business and the way that they think about where their raw materials uh, or, or important parts have to come from. I mean, I'm stealing somebody else's example, but let's say I'm a paint manufacturer, you know, and, and I use, there's 17 chemicals in, in my paints, and, and one of them comes from China and another one comes from Vietnam. And, and I, I, I've been thinking straight along, oh, so what? I get them. I get them. I make my paints. And, and But suddenly that's a problem, right? Suddenly for all the reasons that we've just discussed, yeah, maybe you're not getting that chemical from China, not as fast as you need it. I'm wondering whether you think that the manufacturers are going to start rethinking that paradigm and thinking, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be getting all the things that I need from eight different places. Absolutely, Colin. It's such a great call out. Here's the deal. We've been talking about when it comes to managing supply chains, there's a real big area called supply chain risk management. And we've been talking about supply chain risk management uh, significantly since 9-11, to be honest. But the reality is that a lot of companies were just giving it lip service and did not adequately build in good risk mitigation and risk management uh, capabilities into the way they operate. And so the pandemic really exposed a lot of that. There were a lot of companies that had all their eggs in one basket and they were only sourcing product from Asia. Now we're seeing most companies go back to the drawing board and rethink their risk management strategies in terms of supply chain. And one of those significant risk management tactics that they're doing is saying, hey, we can't afford to get you know, our product from one area or one region of the world. We've got to diversify. In fact, one of the big drivers here is, is what we call the reshoring or the, uh, the nearshoring conversation, where a lot of these companies that offshore their operations, say to, to China or to you know, Taiwan are saying, hey, let's move those processes back to the U.S. or to Mexico or to Panama. These are areas that are closer to us. We have a lot more control and we can get to those uh, uh, inflows of product maybe a lot quicker than we can for a product coming in from Asia. So I, I think you're right. You know, most companies are not grappling with, hey, we've got to really dig deeper into our risk management profiles and tactics. And a lot of that requires us to rethink where we source product from around the world. All right. So we talk a lot about new products. It's, I think it's time to add to this conversation. As I said, Jeff, Jeff Weiser is president uh, and CEO of Goodwill uh, of Western Connecticut and Northern Connecticut. So first of all, welcome to our conversation. And second of all, I, I would imagine people are, are turning more towards uh, towards your stores, towards your outlets, as they realize that they either can't get the thing that they want uh, or they're getting it at such an inflated price because of all of these problems. Well, thanks a lot for having me and us, Colin. Uh, I think that's right. I think there are a couple of different things um, ex- creating the experience, but our our activity in our 21 stores in Western and Northern Connecticut is up about 15% just from 2019, which is the last real normal year we had. Last year, we were closed two and a half months, so we don't compare much of anything to last year. but our activity is way up in the stores and that's because our stores are just full of donations from people being home and cleaning out their attics and their closets and and donating some really wonderful stuff to us so there there is a lot of activity in the secondhand market 
And, you know, I mean, when I talk to people who worry about the future of the planet, this is something they talk about a lot, which is that this whole idea that something gets old and you get rid of it and you get something new, which is very much the American way, and and something that drives our consumer economy is ultimately maybe not sustainable on a planetary level, that, uh, that, that, that it might be a good idea if more than one person owned a coat or a book or a plate or whatever you might have. But you comment on that. Well, absolutely. And not just the fact that a piece of clothing goes to another user, but it won't be a surprise that a lot of the things we get aren't saleable and aren't wearable and aren't usable. But we um, we recycle uh, through through salvage type operations, keeping things out of dumps, about 20 million pounds of used articles. Uh, electronics and clothing and wares and all that stuff every year. So not only are we big in secondhand uh, clothing, we're big in recycling and and big in reusing. But absolutely, there's so much good stuff in our stores that that absolutely should be reused and can be reused and then can support the mission that we do in in getting people back to work and uh, and helping people uh, get back into the employment world. Wow, I didn't know that thing about the recycling. That now means this afternoon I'll be driving 600 CDs that I don't want anymore over to your New Park Avenue location. Absolutely. We'll <laughs> love it. We'll love it. Thank you. Because they, 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 they do look sort of, you know, ecologically pretty hard to recycle. Uh, it's great to know that you guys know how to do that. So, Terry, let me just turn back to you. You know, we're talking about essentially secondhand sales, but, but also, you know, as people confront the realities of the supply chain, um, yeah, maybe as they're looking at Christmas gifts, is it what, a gift card or is it something that's not a physical or material good? Is that going to be more attractive? Uh, yep. Yep. Sure enough. We're seeing that already. I think we're seeing a lot of interesting things. I mean, some of the Black Friday statistics suggest that, you know, um, it, Sales were down on Black Friday, but sales were up prior to Black Friday. I think people were shopping earlier. Um, we, we do see a lot of narrative around, you know, purchasing things that were, you know, previously loved or gently used and, and really thinking differently about how we go about uh, shopping for gifts and other things. I mean, I, I'm also seeing a lot of focus on more experiential gifts. So things like trips and and. Uh, movies and, and things that are more experiential in nature as opposed to being very product driven. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see once this holiday season rolls out, just, you know, how people shifted as we navigate through this supply chain crisis. All right. We're going to stop here. Our final segment is going to be about a place and a group of people who really did think about what hap- what would happen if we didn't have enough of something. It's Canada. It's maple syrup. We'll explain it all to you on the other side. But for now, thanks very much to Terry Esper. Uh, his title is too long for me to say right now with the time I've got. Uh, and Jeff Weiser from Goodwill of Western and Northern Connecticut. And as I say, stay with us. And we'll be with you on the other side to talk about what would happen if somebody really planned for the future. And wouldn't you know, it's those those uh, sturdy Canadians thinking about maple syrup. For instance, this old broken heart, if you will just replace the missing part, you would be surprised to find how good it really is. Take it and you never will be sorry that you did The bargain store is open, come inside The bargain store is open 
can guarantee you'll be completely satisfied. Take these old used memories from the past and these broken dreams and plans that didn't last. I'll trade them for a future. I can't use them anymore I've wasted love But I still have some more The bargain store is up and come inside You can easily afford the price Love is all you need to purchase all the merchandise And I can guarantee We're coming to the third and final segment of our show, but before we go there, I would like to thank Kat Pastor. She is our technical producer every single day, and we are very lucky in that respect. And then senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson, is the person who assembled this program. So the story we're going to tell you here at the end, in a way, is the inverse or antithesis of the stories we've been telling you so far, which are stories about shortages, stories about a supply chain for which there is no emergency plan. Um, so in Canada, perhaps the perhaps this is almost a Canadian stereotype. They thought this thing through. Uh, they've got a plan for what happens if they start to run low on one of the most desirable uh, quanti- commodities that they've got up there. Uh, and before I introduce our guest, uh, let's hear The Daily Show in 2013 talking about that commodity. Everyone knows about the drug violence being perpetrated by the ruthless Mexican cartels. But we haven't heard that much about the violent ones up north, in Quebec. I sat down with a local reporter who agreed to speak with us on the condition we protect his identity. This is a big deal in Canada. Globally, the industry is worth about $400 million a year, and the cartel uh, accounts for about three-quarters of all that production. So what are we talking about here? Coke, heroin, marijuana? Maple syrup. Sorry, come again. Maple syrup. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you're saying maple syrup. Right, maple syrup, the condiment. Okay. Um, can we put the lights on? Maple syrup? What? Yes, maple syrup is big business. Uh, a barrel of maple syrup, the market value is, is almost 20 times that of a barrel of crude oil. Holy Turn the lights out. All right, here to discuss this uh, and what the plan is for times of shortage, uh, which this kind of is almost, uh, is Pascal Terriot. Uh, he is director, director of the Farm Management and Technology Program at McGill University, which, of course, is in beautiful Montreal. Um, so, first of all, welcome to our show. Thanks. And and so what we have to talk about to begin with is the fact that there, there's no strategic reserve for Beaujolais or olive oil, but there is a strategic reserve in Canada for maple syrup. Tell us about it. There is. Actually, back in 2000, the maple syrup producers decided to get together and uh, build that strategic reserve. And uh, there was many reasons why they decided to go that way. One of them was that they were trying to develop the market furthermore. And uh, or as we all know, I assume, uh, maple syrup is extremely weather dependent. So it's, it's hard to develop a market not knowing how much you will be producing this year and the following year. And adding to that, it's hard to invest in your own business when you can't even 
secure a price because you don't know if from one year to the next you'll be able to produce because of weather. Right. So, and you don't want to run out. And so what's happened this year, as I understand it, is not that there's a dramatic shortfall over a long uh, a long graph line, but that 2019 and 2020 were bumper crop years for maple syrup. And 2021 is maybe not quite on a par with those two preceding years. Uh, well, actually, eight, 2018 was a bad year. 19 and 20 were not all that bad. In 2020, there was uh, 175 million pounds produced, out of which about 104, uh, 135 were exported. And uh, 2021 was the bad year. Yeah. So 2021 production went down to 133 million pounds. And at the same time, consumption went up by 20%. And I assume that's because of the pandemic, because you got people at home who are baking or or just making foods that they wouldn't ordinarily prepare in their houses. Well, I think at some point during the pandemic, we all just stopped counting calories. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good point. So, so now, how does this work? Well, I mean, first of all, if, if you've been following the headlines, uh, Canada has agreed to release. Uh, some of the maple syrup in its strategic reserve. We should say, and I've seen pictures of this, what we're talking about is a huge facility full of these stainless steel sterilized barrels. They look almost a little bit like big beer kegs or something that that hold an enormous quantity of maple syrup, correct? Yes, they are 45-gallon barrels that are uh, being stored in a warehouse where there's quality control being done at all time. And Really, what's hap- what happens is that on any given year, we have production. We know what the demand is roughly. And so if there's any excess production, then we can store that maple syrup in the warehouse for a year where it would be not as good like 2021 was, in which case we can use that maple syrup and keep supplying the market with maple syrup. Right. Now, you can't do this indefinitely, obviously. This whole thing is kind of based on the idea in certain years there will be a surplus and in certain years there will be shortfalls. And and we should mention that my understanding is that back in 2008, after two or three years of bad production, bad weather, they really did run out of syrup in the reserve, correct? Correct. The, the, the reserve went back to zero. And uh, well, Thankfully, there's a relatively easy way to go around that. It's just to increase the amount of taps. And that's exactly what the Quebec maple syrup producers decided to do following the, the year we just had. And the fact that we had to use 50% of the reserve, they're actually increasing by 7 million taps, the amount of taps we have in Quebec. So that will take it to 57 million by within the next three years. So that, that sounds also very prudent. But I mean, the whole idea of using up 50%, of your reserve, that's that seems a little urgent, right? I mean, you you, you obviously uh, couldn't do that indefinitely. Maybe you couldn't do it indefinitely, even with the new taps that you're talking about. No, well, uh, really, the, the weather was at play with that one, and the and that weather affected the U.S. also. Mm-hmm. What we really saw is that the U.S. ran out of maple syrup, and therefore we started exporting to the U.S. to fulfill the U.S. market. And that's why there was so much maple syrup that was used from the reserve for the current year. So by increasing production, because they always try to match production with what, what the supply is ultimately to, to not have an oversupply on the market. So on a normal year, 
the reserve should hold itself. We had bad years. We have to hope we won't have two, three years of bad years because we will hit the same situation we did in 2008. We will run out of maple syrup in that reserve. Right. And and the, the other question is, is there such a thing as a normal year anymore? Climate change has made weather more extreme and less predictable. I would imagine that falls very heavily uh, on the maple syrup producers. It does. And uh, I, I think the fact they're increasing the number of taps under production by so much over the next three years is, is to compensate. And so to purposely overstock in the reserve for the bad years that will probably come back more often than we were used to. Um, you know, this I, I'm about to ask you a question that may be a little bit outside your field of expertise, but it, it's worth asking anyway. I mean, we're just completing an entire show about the problems, the bottlenecks of getting anything to any destination. Uh, and a lot of those bottlenecks are happening not in places like like the Canadian Maple Syrup Reserve. They're happening at ports where there are container ships and bottlenecks there. But we're also going through a period right now where it's just hard to deliver things. Do you have any sense of whether that will, I mean, it's one thing to have enough maple syrup. It's another thing to get that maple syrup where it's supposed to go. Uh, do you have any sense of, uh, of whether the supply chain problems we're experiencing globally would touch the maple syrup industry? Well, at some point, there's only so many trucks you can put on the road. So it could potentially end up uh, affecting the delivery of maple syrup because you, of course, cannot put that in the trunk of your car, a 45-gallon barrel. (laughs) But uh, what we're seeing right now when it comes to the supply chain is a pretty generalized situation. And I think we're all paying the price right now for having such an efficient system that used to run so smoothly that we never had to question it. And all of a sudden, we just missed a step and everything falls down. <laughs> um, you know, to I think if you've ever been to either Vermont or Canada and been looking at maple syrup, the other thing you discover is that there are different kinds of maple syrup, right? Almost different grades of it. Um, are, are there different levels of demand for those uh, different grades or different types of maple syrup? There is. Uh, usually as consumers, what we tend to purchase is either the lighter one or at most what we call here the amber one. So it, it's not too dark. It has a, a lighter taste. It's a sweet wise. It, it is lighter also. But for processors, what they're often looking for is the darker maple syrup. The darker maple syrup will tend to have a much stronger taste. And therefore, if you're going to be using real maple syrup in your recipes or in your processing, while you'd like to have the darker one because you'll be able to use less of it to get the same result in the end. I don't know if we've said this yet, but, um, you know, Canadian maple syrup and maple syrup are almost the same things. Yes, we've got it in Vermont. We've got it in, in other places. But Canada produces, what, somewhere around maybe 77% of the world's maple syrup? Or I don't know. What's the number? Well, actually, Quebec produces 72% of the world wow. maple syrup. <laughs> that is and it, it accounts for Quebec accounts for over 90% of the Canadian production. Yeah, that is amazing, though, that, that just one region does that. Well, you know, we would be remiss, particularly as a news organization that traffics in sensationalism, if we didn't mention that 
the other way that you can have a shortage at the reserve uh, would be if somebody steals it. And, and in 2011 and 2012, you actually had the great Canadian maple syrup heist. Give, us, give our listeners just a, a quick description of that. I, I know, right? It sounds like a surreal news that we had, but indeed you had individuals that uh, decided to sneak in that reserve, w- which is not really hard to find. It's just right by the highway. Although security has been increased since, but and, and they actually emptied barrels and refilled the barrels with water. And it, it did take quite a while before people noticed anything. It's, it's going through quality control at some point when they tested the maple syrup for quality that they realized that all those barrels were, were was water. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because actually, for uh, it was a very serious problem for for certain people and must have must have hit them quite hard. The last thing we should just say mention just the size of this. The, my understanding of this facility is it's the size of what five football fields. I don't know whether it's Canadian Football League football fields or uh, American football fields, but this is a really really big place. It, it, it is the size of five football fields. Indeed. <laughs> so that's vast. So it sounds like, as we begin to wrap up here, that you you sound relatively confident. I mean, understanding that weather and its vicissitudes can produce all kinds of unpredictability, that even though they're, you're drawing down half of this reserve, that we're not going to run out of maple syrup anytime soon? Well, Demand is pretty stable, so should we have a normal year, given the increase in taps that we are putting in place in Quebec, we should be able to rebuild that reserve. So, And we had 100 million pounds of, in storage. We still have 50 million pounds, give or take, in storage. We will, by the time we hit the next sugaring season, have about 50 million pounds left. So that would be enough to for, for another year. Right. Should the year be as bad as it is right now? Right. So everybody relax about that. But, you know, uh, also, if you pass a maple tree, say thank you to it. Uh, and we'd like to say thank you to Pascal Terrio, uh, the director of Farm Management and Technology Program at McGill University. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. All right. And that's the end of our supply line uh, or supply chain show. Remember, a chain is only as strong as its weakest links. Uh, and we happen to have very strong links in our chain. Thanks again to Kat Pastor uh, and Lily Tyson and to all of our guests. And goodbye. Late in the winter, it's maple syrup time. You need warm and sunny days, but still a cold and freezing nighttime for just a few weeks. Maple syrup time. We boil and boil and boil and boil it all day long Till 97% of water evaporates just like this song And when what is left is syrupy, don't leave it too long Keep up the fire